But to those who trust in the word, to those who look to the word made flesh by faith, to those God gives the gift of eternal life in himself, to those God brings them into a new creation, no longer marked by the violence of sin, but instead the love of God. That new creation, born at the cross through blood and water poured out of Jesus' side, that new creation assured when he was resurrected and ascended to the Father's right hand, that new creation is yours because God has brought you out of the old creation of sin and death and into the new creation of life and love. Having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. Hallelujah. Amen. God's word to us this morning begins in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. Hear the word of the Lord. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For he either will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. For this reason I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. We'll turn now to Second Chronicles chapter 1. Verse 1. Now Solomon, the son of David, established himself securely over his kingdom, and Yahweh, his God, was with him and exalted him greatly. And Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and to the judges and to every leader in all Israel, the heads of the father's households. Then Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place, which was at Gibeon, for God's tent of meeting was there, which Moses, the servant of Yahweh, had made in the wilderness. 
However, David had brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim to the place he had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. Now the bronze altar which Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, was there before the tabernacle of Yahweh, and Solomon Solomon in the assembly sought it out. And Solomon went up there before Yahweh to the bronze altar which was at the tent of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. And that night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask, what shall I give you? And Solomon said to God, Thou hast dealt with my father David with great loving kindness and has made me king in his place. Now, O Yahweh God, thy promise to my father David is fulfilled, for thou hast made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge, that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can rule this great people of thine? And God said to Solomon, Because you had this in mind and did not ask for riches, wealth, or honor, or the life of those who hate you, nor have you even asked for long life, but you have asked for yourself wisdom and knowledge, that you may rule my people, over whom I have made you king. Wisdom and knowledge have been granted to you, and I will give you riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings who were before you has possessed, nor those who will come after you. So Solomon went from the high place which was at Gibeon, from the tent of meeting to Jerusalem, and he reigned over Israel. And Solomon amassed chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, and he stationed them in the chariot cities and with the king at Jerusalem. And the king made silver and gold as plentiful in Jerusalem as stones, and he made cedars as plentiful as sycamores in the lowland. And Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew. The king's traders procured them from Kew for a price, And they imported chariots from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver apiece, and horses for 150 apiece. And by the same means they exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Aram. Now Solomon decided to build a house for the name of Yahweh, and a royal palace for himself. So Solomon assigned 70,000 men to carry loads, and 80,000 men to quarry, stone in the mountains, and 3,600 to supervise them. Please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 111. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we 
As we continue, let's sing to you. Let's bow in prayer. Father, once again, we want to thank you that through the blood of Christ, you invite us to draw near something Israel could never do. But in Christ, the tabernacle that dwelt among us, you invite us to draw near and to gaze upon your glory and all the riches that you bestow on us through Christ. We thank you for your word, especially how you speak to us and how your word transforms us, changes us from one degree of glory into another degree of glory. And we pray that you would do that this morning as we look into your word by your grace in Christ's name. Amen. So Adam and Eve were thrust out of the garden, and what they left behind were three things. One, the tree of life, which if a man would eat, he would live forever. And two, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a tree from which one should eat at the proper time to know how to discern between good and evil in judgment. And three, and most importantly, they left behind Yahweh. They were thrust out of the garden, and the way into the garden was now guarded by a cherubim with a flaming sword turning every direction. This system persists down through biblical history, for when the tabernacle was made, the tabernacle is a picture of the Garden of Eden, and man is not allowed in. The Levites were allowed into the courtyard to tend to their work. The priests were allowed in to the holy place to tend to their work. The high priest was allowed into God's throne room once a year. And the Levites stalked around the place with spears. And if you crossed a boundary for which you had no right to cross, they would thrust you through like the cherubim. Well, we're not in that section anymore. Now we've come to the actual building of the temple. And of course, the temple is far superior. It is, it is uh, much grander. It uh, takes 13-some years to build. 20 years in all of Solomon's building projects. He reigned for 40 years. The first 22 years were set forth with building his house, the house uh, of, called the Forest of Lebanon, and also the temple. The last 18 years, we're not quite sure how they span out, but at some point, Solomon's heart was turned away. For after all, he did exactly what Deuteronomy chapter 17 told kings not to do. He was selected by God. He was promised as the Davidic descendant who would reign. And he was told that God would establish him if he kept God's commandments and observed God's ways. 
And as we'll see today, he did have a whole heart for God initially. And then he took on the project of gaining for himself 1,000 wives. Well, maybe 1,001 because he had the wife, the Egyptian from uh, the, the, the Pharaoh's daughter. But he took on 700 wives and 300 concubines. A concubine is also a wife. A concubine is just a wife who is not given a dowry. So 1,000 wives, and we're informed that they turned his heart from God so that he, his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. Instead, he began to worship other gods. The word fully devoted, which is not found in Chronicles, it's found in 1 Kings chapter 11, is the word Solomon, shalom. We've discovered in 1 Chronicles, and we'll see again as we work through 2 Chronicles, that the word shalom, it can mean rest, it can mean devoted, it can mean peace. It's a heart that's at peace with God. Our hearts are restless, says Augustine, until we find our rest in you. And in the church today, there are many restless hearts. Solomon became restless, and God did not take the kingdom from him in his day, but he did divide the kingdom in Solomon's son's day, so that two tribes were left to Judah, and ten tribes departed with Jeroboam and are called Israel. In this era, Solomon builds this magnificent, beautiful, fantastic temple that has a glorious name among the nations. And Solomon becomes the kind of king that God says will be richer than any king that has come before or any king that will come after, save one. Solomon will be wiser than any king who has come before or any king who has come after, save one. Solomon's building projects and his wealth and his wisdom were world-renowned, and people would come to see Solomon and to hear the wisdom that God had put in his hearts. In, in his heart. So when you look at 2 Chronicles, remember Chronicles is divided into two parts. It's really one book, and it is the last book of the Old Testament, not in the order you have in your Bible, but in the Hebrew Bible, it is the last book. Because it was not written during Solomon's day or during any of the king's days, it was written for the post-exilic people of God who are coming back to the land to rebuild the temple, and it is written so they will not err as did Solomon. The interesting thing about Solomon is when you read 1 and 2 Chronicles, he is presented as the perfect king. Certain things are left out in the record in Chronicles, 
So, for example, the fact that he disobeyed God and multiplied to himself many wives, which Deuteronomy 17 warns that if a man does that, if a king does it, then those wives will turn his heart away from following God. That's exactly what happened to Solomon. That's not recorded in Chronicles. His uh, wisdom in dealing with the two prostitutes and their two babies, one who had died, it's not recorded. Certain building projects are not recorded, but what is recorded is the fact that Solomon has the highest, greatest name of all the kings, that Solomon has a heart that is, well, a Solomon heart, shalom. He's not restless. He's at peace with God. Even David, whose heart in one sense is presented better than Solomon's heart, nevertheless, a sin of his is recorded, not his sin in having Uriah murdered because Bathsheba came, became pregnant through adultery with David. That's not recorded. But what is recorded is the fact that he mustered the troops. He took a census when God had not called him to do so. And 70,000 Israelite people lost their life because of what David had done. So David is not presented in a perfect way. Hezekiah is a pretty good king in 2 Chronicles. But Hezekiah also is presented as one who did not give thanks to God when he should have for the healing that God gave. And he exposed the treasures of Israel to Babylon. Solomon is presented as the perfect king, the model king, the one to follow in 2 Chronicles. Now, we'll have to make some kind of sense of that because, after all, the last 18, 15, 18, 20 years of his life were spent in debauchery with wives, building temples to other gods, worshiping other gods. And, of course, the Bible does not record a repentance some people think that that's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about, and it might be, but still, we don't know that. I don't think that's what it's about. We will discover at the proper time here, a few chapters away, where I think Ecclesiastes falls. But nevertheless, we have to answer this question. It's just kind of looming out there. But the chronicler is not bothered by it. He's presenting the good side. And, and aren't you glad that God is merciful towards you and looks on the good side and not always on the bad side? Otherwise, we would always be in trouble, wouldn't we? Because there's enough bad in all of us to be in trouble all the time. But God, because of Christ, he looks on the good side. He shows us mercy, and James reminds us if you want to receive mercy at the last judgment, then you need to show mercy. That's an area in which the Christian church can grow among the members of the church. We're not very merciful. We're very critical, not merciful. We need to be like God, 
like God was in his inspired word in 2 Chronicles towards Solomon. The first nine chapters of 1 Chronicles is a genealogy. The last chapters, chapters 10 through 29, are occupied by David's life and occupied really in the new musical revolution and then preparations under the Davidic covenant for the building of the temple, which David was not allowed to do. Instead, Solomon, his son, was going to do it because David was a man of war, and Solomon, of course, means peace, rest, and he's a man of rest. He was not a fighter. Second Chronicles, the first nine chapters, are written about Solomon. The rest of the book is written about the debacle of the kings of Judah. A key word, there are several key words in Chronicles, but a key word is ma'al, and it means treachery, treachery, unfaithfulness, treason, something like that. It is what we find in 1 Chronicles chapter 10 about Saul. He was unfaithful. He transgressed. He had a God. But his God wasn't doing what he wanted. So what did he do? He went to a medium, a spiritist. And for that, God was displeased with him because he did not seek after God. He sought after a spiritist. In the book of 2 Chronicles, David excuse me, Solomon is given the opposite accolade. That is, he has the highest name. And it's a word you can't see in English. It's a pun. It's also ma'al. But now it doesn't mean treachery. It's pointed just a little bit differently, even though it's pronounced exactly the same in Hebrew. And it means to be highly exalted, whereas Saul was brought down to the lowest. Second Chronicles deals in its second half, chapters 10 through 36, with the Ma'el of the kings, their treachery, for which Israel went into captivity. The land vomited them out, and they went off the captivity for 70 years, and at the end of 70 years, a remnant came back. Chapters 1 through 9 about Solomon are, uh, I will present it to you, not the whole thing today, and I will give you this outline at the proper time, are a chiasm. So this chiasm has, working its way, I'm going to A, B, C, D, and then at the pinnacle, E. Now, it's A on one side we're going to look at today, but A on the other side is pretty much the same. And chapter 1 is the A side, and it's about Solomon's wealth and riches and power and honor. When you come to the other side, chapter 9, it's about Solomon's wealth and riches and power and honor. In the first section, chapter 1, it's about Solomon seeking God. In the second section, chapter 9, 
It's about the Queen of Sheba and all the other surrounding kings seeking Solomon. Why? Because he had the gifts from God of riches and power and honor. He's exalted above everyone and wisdom. In the first chapter, we're going to see the word wisdom. Solomon wants wisdom. In chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, you're not going to see the word wisdom again. In chapter 9, we're going to see the word wisdom five times, and we will never see it in the book again. This is foundational. Over here, Solomon seeks wisdom. Over here, what? The Gentile kings seek the wisdom of Solomon. It tells you something. And at the heart, way up here at the pinnacle of the chiasm, is Solomon's prayer, which is the display of his wisdom. And so just by working your way from wisdom up to this prayer and back down to wisdom, just by looking at the structure, you catch some of the meaning and some of the importance and some of the application that belongs to us. You see, when Solomon sought God's wisdom, God granted him wisdom so that kings sought Solomon. And in the pinnacle, in the middle, where he's praying about the temple. What is he praying about? Even when Gentiles look, answer their prayers. So, right up front, in case we don't get far enough, what does it mean? Well, the pursuit we should have is the pursuit of wisdom. And of course, Proverbs makes that abundantly clear along with Job, along with Ecclesiastes, along with Song of Solomon, along with Psalms, the books that we call wisdom literature. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The first principle of wisdom is the fear of Yahweh. Solomon was seeking that wisdom. That wisdom is really broad. It teaches someone how to think and apply God's word. That's what happened for Solomon. But it's broader than that. It teaches people how to be good mathematicians and good builders and good merchants and good parents and good mates. That's what wisdom does. All the other stuff that we seek turn out to be what happened to Solomon, not in Chronicles. It turns out to be idols. Like Ezekiel 14 says, they set up idols in their heart. Some people think that means, well, they didn't bow down. They're just things like uh, 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 money. Well, I don't think that's what it means in Ezekiel. But the principle is correct. So... Several people recently, in the last decade or two, have written books on the deceptiveness of things like money, sex, and power. The idols of our culture. 
So Solomon becomes an illustration as we read in the book of Matthew, the section we read. Lay up not treasures for yourselves on earth, where rust and moth corrupt, but lay up treasures for yourselves in heaven. Now, you can apply that to giving money to the church. That's certainly laying up treasures in heaven, but I don't think that's what it's talking about. Instead, when you look at Matthew chapter 6, you have two bookends. Be careful of practicing your righteousnesses before men, because when you want men's approval, you get their approval, and that's all you get no more. You only get what you get on earth. When you get to the end of the book, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Now, these are matching ends, so when we get down to the end, we're not talking about justification by faith. Seek first justification. No, it doesn't mean that. It means the righteousness about which the chapter's speaking. Almsgiving. Giving to people in need. About prayer. It's easy to pray in public for a lot of people. You know, you stand, you feel obligated, silent, you stand up and you speak. But how much prayer goes on at home? Do we just do it so men can clap their hands and say, oh, what a great prayer warrior that person is. That's not right. And if that's what you do, then when you get to heaven, there's no reward following you there. And the other is fasting. Fasting, not to lose weight. That's not a bad thing. But fasting to draw closer to God. So Solomon becomes an illustration in this chapter because Solomon had all the money. You just read it. Silver and gold as plentiful as stones in Jerusalem. Of course, that's a bit hyperbolic. There are many more stones in Jerusalem than silver and gold, but that's telling you about the wealth of Solomon. And yet, in all of that, Jesus says to his disciples, why are you worried about with what you will be clothed? Look at the lilies of the valley. They neither toil nor spin, yet in all of Solomon's glory. Remember, he's got the highest name. He doesn't look as good as they do. And yet, they're here for a moment and gone. Will not your father care for you? Oh, you of little faith. Well, so wisdom then teaches us where to put our trust. It says, fear Yahweh. Well, that means a little bit about be afraid. After all, God can bring a tornado right down on your house if he wants to. But fear in the Bible is a fear that is a reverent awe. This God is fantastic. This God is different than me. He never sins. He always does what's right. I don't always understand his ways, but I can trust him totally. Fear God. That's the beginning of wisdom. That is Solomon. He was a wise man.
until he wasn't wise. He was a wise man. Wisdom, of course, like I said, it's very broad. And its broadness is addressed throughout the wisdom literature. So I suppose there's probably two or three new books on family every year that's written by a new... If you, if you got a name, you got to write something on the family. But you don't need their books. Because the Bible has, whoa, way much to say about rearing children. Yet, we don't listen to the Bible. The Bible has, yay, much to say about how to be a spouse. Oh, there are all kinds of books on the Christian shelves. Yet we don't do what the Bible says. Yeah, because our pursuit in the evangelical church across America is not a pursuit of wisdom. It's a pursuit of happiness. And whatever particular idol we have that we think will make us happy, we pursue it. Whether it be money, give all our time to making money. Whether it be you know, some other, uh, say, getting a wife or getting a husband. And we give all our time to that or trying to make things different than they are. No, we need to come back and be a Solomon. What did Solomon say? Give me wisdom and knowledge. So here's how chapter 1 works. When you jump back into chapter 22, chapter 28, and chapter 29 of First. Chronicles, also chapter 17, with the Davidic covenant, promises are made to David. No, 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 you're not going to build this temple, but your son's going to build it. And I will be his father and he will be my son. And I will establish his kingdom and his throne. So you come to chapter 1 of 2 Chronicles and Solomon has securely established his kingdom. This is God's work. And what does Solomon do? Solomon, he goes and he talks to the people. He talks to the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, and to the judges, and to uh, the people over the households. In other words, he's come to power. When Rehoboam comes to power, his son, he doesn't listen to anybody else. He doesn't talk. He's got his way. But not Solomon. He's establishing his kingship. He knows the importance of people. So he goes and he sees the people. And he takes the assembly to Gibeon. Now the word assembly is the word kahal. Kahal. The word Koheleth is just a takeoff, the same radicals, and it means if you looked in your Bible, and depending on the version you have in Ecclesiastes, you would see that word, but you'd see it in English as the preacher. Kahal, 
is an assembly, a gathering. Kahalath is not exactly the preacher. Kahalath is the gatherer. And so what this son of David has done is he's went out and met the people and he calls them all together and they become one assembly. And as one assembly, they go to Gibeon. It's like Jesus saying, I know my sheep and my sheep know me. I'm a shepherd, they're the sheep. If they hear someone else's voice, they simply will not listen. They know my voice and they listen. And when I go in and out and I call them, they follow me. That's the same kind of picture here. But now it's cast in terms of a leader. But really, it's shepherd terminology. Because David says, I need wisdom to come in and go out. It's the picture of a shepherd. And of course, the kings in Israel, classically, Old Testamentish, always shepherds caring for the sheep. And so sometimes the shepherd goes out. He doesn't call the sheep to follow him because there's danger out there. He's going out to get rid of it. Sometimes he calls them out to lead them to green pastures. They need new food. Sometimes he comes in and he calls his sheep to come around him when he comes in to let them know they're safe and secure. All, all that stuff. That is Solomon, just like his father David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. David says, if the Lord's my shepherd, then to the people I must be their shepherd. So Solomon, only he's got a higher name, more exalted than even David. And so he talks to all the people, and now they're all in. Remember at the early part of David's career as king? There was division for seven years, division. And even when they reunited, then division again. Not with Solomon. No, he's an assembler. He's the preacher, Koheleth. And so they go to Gibeon. Now, Gibeon is where the tabernacle that Moses built is. But the back room that houses the throne, the Ark of the Covenant, is not there. The covenant, the Ark of the Covenant's gone. Because David has moved it from Kiriath-Jerim up to Jerusalem, and he's pitched a tent, and the Ark sits in there. But for the most part, sometimes they sacrifice up in Jerusalem, but for the most part, they don't sacrifice. And so the whole assembly goes with Solomon down to Gibeon. Now, what does that mean? Well, you have to know a little bit about biblical feasts to know what that means. Because the assembly is called to gather three times a year. All the men, all the women don't have to gather because sometimes they're, you know, they're weighed down with children. They're pregnant. They can't make the journey, so forth. But Generally, everybody goes that can go, men and women. Men are required. Women come along with their husbands. When the whole assembly goes, you know it's one of the feasts. It's either the feast of Passover with unleavened bread, or it's the feast of weeks about the grain harvest, or it's the feast of booths, the end of the year, the seventh month, the grape harvest. All of these are week-long events, festivals, 
Israel's on a lunar calendar. They're in the middle of the month. Why? Because they don't have electricity. And in the middle of the month, they get a full moon because these are festivals where they eat and drink and rejoice in the Lord. They do a little dancing. Ooh, not very evangelical-like. But of course, they don't have to be their Jews. You're supposed to laugh at that one. So it's an assembly. We're not told, well, I mean, a, fee, a festival. We're not told which one. They all go. And when they get there, there's that tabernacle missing the ark. But what's out front is the bronze altar that Beziel formed. He's the one who was given wisdom, skill to do all this work on the tabernacle and its furnishings. He had wisdom to build. He was an artisan. And so Solomon comes to that bronze altar, which has four horns to show that it's a replica of a mountain to make him think about Mount Sinai and looking way up and seeing that smoky cloud above. And what he does is he makes a smoky cloud above that altar 1,000 well, the New American Standard says he offered 1,000 burnt offerings. Of course, we're savvy here at NBC. Now, we know that's not what it says. It says he offered 1,000 ascensions. Of course, they were burnt. The whole thing is burnt except for the skin that's taken off the hide. So, 1,000. Why 1,000? Well, you know, we can't always answer numeral questions, but lots of times we can, and 1,000 is one that you can't answer. Psalm 50 tells us God owns the cattle on a 1,000 hills. Now, what about a 1,001 hill? Does he own those cattle too? And the answer is yes. He owns all the cattle on all the hills. I don't know how many hills there are in the globe, do you? So 1,000 is put to represent the totality of what God owns. That should give you some kind of clue about Revelation chapter 20, and they will reign for 1,000 years. <sighs> Revelation is symbol all the way, and so is the number. It's the totality. They're going to reign from the time they take their throne, and forever they're going to reign 1,000 years. And so 1,000 here is representative of the totality. And the totality of what? It's the totality of Israel. All the assemblies there. And David offers 1,000 ascensions. To picture what? Remember, when you come and you offer an ascension, you lean your hand on the ascension, and the ascension offering becomes your substitute because you can't go up to God in smoke. You wouldn't exist anymore. But an animal can be fully transformed by fire into smoke and rise up to God. And that's you going up to meet with God. But now there are 1,000 of them. Just like on Sundays when we gather together and we have the call to worship, we're called to draw near. We do not draw near individually. 
No, we do that at home, fine and dandy. But when we're here as the church, we draw corporately. So with Israel, they're going up in an ascension. 1,000 animal smokes ascending to God. To do what? To show devotion. To show devotion. We want to draw near. Solomon is saying, Yahweh, you are everything. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. And so those 1,000 ascensions arise to God. And that night, that night, God appears to Solomon. What would you ask of me, Solomon? Well, Yahweh, I need wisdom and knowledge. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One. Yahweh, as a nation, we are for you because you are for us. You've showered your grace on us. Yahweh, you fulfilled the promise to my father. You did exactly what you told him you would do, and you've put me on the throne. And now there's this whole group of people that have ascended with me in smoke into your presence, and Yahweh, you've put me in charge of them. And I need to know how to come out and to go in. And I need wisdom and knowledge, because what does a king do? A king judges his people. Cases come up and decisions have to be made. Well, of course, that's not what most people would ask for. Most people would ask for riches and wealth. Because we think, well, now if we have all of that, we have the easy life, we're good to go. If you're in a war-torn country, you would ask for, oh, those who hate me, deliver me from them and kill them. And you'd think, wow, if I just had that, I would have, oh, not a restless heart anymore. I'd be at peace. You might ask for long life because, after all, long life is what everybody wants. They want to live a long time. I'm already feeling the urge not to. So David, excuse me, Solomon, didn't ask for security. He didn't ask for wealth. He didn't ask for health. He asked for something that would benefit the people, that he be a man of wisdom and knowledge. Well, there it is. Where do you get it? Well, God gives it. That doesn't mean that, you know, we just sit back and whoo, open up your mind and in it flows. It's the glory of God, says Proverbs 25, 2, for, king, for God to conceal matters. It's the glory of kings 
to find them out. God is looking for people who will search, who push and push and want and want Him. So God grants wisdom and knowledge, a gift. But He also grants riches and wealth, a thing that Deuteronomy 17 says kings shouldn't strive for. And He grants kavod, heaviness, weightiness, importance, status, which Solomon didn't ask for, but God gave it to him. And chapter 9 is going to tell us how weighty this man is because he knew what was needed, wisdom. And wisdom is what you and I need. So he's going to build this huge, fantastic, grand temple. But you know what? It's going to be like the tabernacle. People can come into the courtyard, just the front of the courtyard, but they can't go any further. They can't go into the holy room where the candelabra is and the golden lampstand and the table of showbread. They can't go in there. Just the priests who are doing their work can go in while they're doing the work, and then they've got to come out. And they can't go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant is in this new temple that Solomon's going to build. All of that's hidden from the people. Where do they stand? They stand way back at the edge of the temple. And all the stuff in there is hidden. Paul calls that a mystery. The mystery is Christ with hidden treasure. Hidden treasure. So we can put it this way. In John chapter 1, Jesus said, or, or John said, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So Jesus was a walking tabernacle. And Paul says, in him are found all the hidden treasures. All the wisdom is found in him. In John chapter 2, the Jews mistake what Jesus says, but nevertheless, in one sense, they're correct. He is the temple. We are the temple. And now Solomon's building a temple, and the treasures are still hidden. What are the treasures? Well, if you can get into the holy room, there are three treasures. There's manna corresponding to the tree of life. You eat the manna, you live. Jesus says, I've come down as manna from heaven. Eat me, you live. You go into the Ark of the Covenant, and there is God's word, the Ten Commandments, the tables of stone, wisdom, knowledge. And alongside the Ark of the Covenant, is Aaron's rod that budded. Jesus is the word. Jesus is the life. And Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration was like that rod that budded with white blossoms. His hair turns to white. So Paul can say, ah, yes, for us. Where do you find wisdom? Well, you go find it in Jesus. Where do you find life? Well, you go find it in Jesus. Where do you find status? You go find it in Jesus. 
Well, so now what does that tell you? You take the world outside, and yeah, there are a lot of people that can do a lot of things very skillfully. But if you don't know Jesus, you just simply don't have access to the hidden treasures. You don't have the key. You're not wise. And so the world outside of the church should not surprise us. They don't know the treasures because they don't know the man, Jesus. We do. The sad thing is in the evangelical church, like I said, not many are pursuing Jesus. Solomon was, hey, let's go down to Gibeon for the feast and let's ascend by a substitute into the presence of God and let's get wisdom and life. That's what Chronicles is about. That's what Solomon's about. That's what Christians are about. And I just want to urge, it's, it's, I suppose, time to quit. I want to urge you along these lines. Wisdom. Read Proverbs. Read Song of Solomon. Read Ecclesiastes. Read Job. Read Psalms. Discover. It's all summed up in Christ. Pursue Christ. And what the evangelical church needs is wise old men. And what the evangelical church needs is wise old women. And what the evangelical church needs is wise fathers and wise mothers who say, okay, I don't care what the books say. Not that books don't help. You know I love reading and I urge you to do that. But first, God's word. And you see, if you're not doing what God's word says, then you're just telling me I'm not very wise. Let me say it again. If you're not doing what God's word says, let's just say in terms of your money, in terms of your mate, in terms of your children, if you're not doing it, Maybe you don't even know what it says. But if you're not doing it, you're telling me, I am not wise. The message of Solomon is, hey, have a Solomon heart, a holy, devoted heart. What is it you want to ask of me, God says? Wealth? Oh, no, 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 God, I'm not interested in wealth. Security? No, no. I'll be happy to die for Christ. Health? No, no. Oh, yeah, health is okay, but, you know, I know we live in a fallen world, and I'm going to die. No, what I need, Yahweh, is wisdom. Please stand. Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom is hidden all of the treasures of wisdom in you invite us to come and know him. And he unlocks them, unloads them into our lives. If we'll just listen 
and trust. Make us, Father, into a wise church so that people look at us and like the Gentiles flocked to see Solomon. May they flock to see and be seen. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen.